1: I also work with gender-questioning teenagers, and I facilitated support meetings for families and individuals who've been impacted by gender issues.
0: We're curious about the concept of gender and how it's unfolding in the wider culture.
1: Join us as we look at gender through a wider lens.
0: Lisa Duval is a licensed clinical psychologist who's worked with children, teens, and families for over 30 years. She's also the mother of a fiercely gender-questioning 18-year-old daughter who has been male-identified for the last five years. She works with ROGD teens in an exploratory, feminist, empowering, and body-positive way, affirming their beautiful and complicated selves, but not simply affirming their trans identities. We start off with Lisa describing the old DSM multi-axial system, which was actually discarded in the new version, version 5. In Axis Two, we had cognitive and personality disorders, including borderline personality disorder. Listeners of the podcast often ask me and Stella about potential links between borderline personality constellations and gender issues, so we were really excited to speak with Lisa about this. For starters, she shares why borderline personality should rarely, if ever, be diagnosed in teens, though sometimes you might hear psychiatrists say a kid has borderline traits. So we delve into how common and almost quintessential these traits are as a part of a pretty normal adolescent development. Lisa then explains a really fascinating theory. Not only are kids with these traits perhaps more vulnerable to ROGD, but also that aspects of gender identity ideology can iatrogenically create borderline dynamics in these dysphoric kids and families. In other words, gender ideology and the dogmatic affirmation approach could be causing and exacerbating these borderline traits, according to Lisa. We also have a chance to explore the overlap between expressions of autism and borderline. And Lisa gets to comment on a previous discussion we had about this with Dr. Susan Bradley in episode 65 that was part of our Pioneer series. And then at the end of the episode, Lisa shares a really interesting way that she and her clients have found that circumvent the issue of picking the new cross-sex name while exploring gender identity. So this was really great, and we really hope you'll enjoy our conversation with Lisa Duvall.
1: Stella, how are you in Ireland? I'm good. I'm good. It's a lovely sunny day, and life is good these days, thankfully. How are you, Sasha? Yes.
0: I am doing pretty well, um, and I'm very excited to have Lisa Duval on our program. Welcome to Gender A Wider Lens. Thank you both so much for having
2: me. This means so much to me.
0: Well, Lisa, we've known you for some time, kind of hanging out behind the scenes, and um, frankly, I, I didn't know too much about your background as a therapist. You specialize in um, personality disorders, access two and cluster B, which, as I said before we started, <laughs> sounds like a breakfast cereal to me, but only it were, yeah, yeah, but it's not a breakfast cereal, it is something in the d s m so maybe we can start out with some basics because I think um i I even though I'm a therapist, I'm not really that familiar with a lot of the mm-hmm. specifics of working with personality disorders, and I tend to um, be a little bit weary of labels in the first place. And so Mm -hmm. I think there's probably some value to them that I might miss. So can you just explain to us like, what is this and how did you get into this work as a therapist?
2: Yes, I'd be happy to. So the DSM used to be organized in five axes. And that has changed recently, but I think it's still valuable to go back to that notion. And the first one was um, mood and substance disorders, axis one, and axis two used to be personality disorders, also cognitive disorders. But so we generally say axis two, personality disorders, and then there are three clusters of personality disorders. And the first one is the odd and eccentric behavior like paranoid and schizotypal. And that is Cluster A. Cluster B are their dramatic, overly emotional, or unpredictable thinking and behavioral disorders. And those include antisocial, borderline, histrionic, and narcissistic. And then cluster C is sort of anxious, fearful, obsessive-compulsive personality type. Um, But personality disorders in general are, it's a type of mental disorder in which an individual has rigid and unhealthy patterns of thinking and functioning and behaving in relationships. There's trouble perceiving um, emotional interreactions and relating to situations and people. Um, and I- I'm not necessarily a clinician who overly diagnoses or finds it always helpful, but I think there are times when it is really helpful to see patterns of behavior in in this way. Um. So how did I get into this? I um, have been in practice for about 30 years, as you mentioned in the bio, and I grew up with two um, officially diagnosed parents with officially diagnosed personality disorders. Dad, father with narcissistic personality disorder, mother with borderline personality disorder, was the oldest child, quite parentified, and grew up trying to understand my parents and how they related to me, to the world, to each other, why their relationships were so difficult. Um, Um, could I ask, did did
1: they actually tell you I'm a narcissist? I'm a borderline personality. Like, did you know this or was this much later on? No, they
2: went through a horrific divorce and it was through the divorce proceedings and inappropriate access to everything. Both parents fed me information about the other that I saw that these were officially diagnosed and used against each other in the divorce proceedings. And it was just there, they were such um, ca- almost caricatures of the disorder that it wasn't, it wasn't subtle. It was quite easy to, to, to see and to understand. So um, I, I, I came to the world of therapy just very naturally and very early on. And it was always, as i mentioned just very um perplexing to me how how this comes to be how these personality disorders come to be and um and I, I grew up feeling like if only someone had helped if only had someone had helped and intervened for my family for my siblings and me but also for my parents because i would see the way they would distort relationships continuously and mm. see the painful experiences in their childhoods and knowing their parents and understanding some of how this all came to be. And so no surprise that I became a therapist and, um, I just, I naturally came to be able to have a really high tolerance for the relationship challenges that come from working with people with personality disorders and, it kind of happened accidentally, but it would just turn out that almost accidentally, someone would come to to the practice, to my practice, with this this one disorder or another, one personality disorder or another, and I would end up keeping them in therapy. Mm. People don't often show up for therapy with personality disorders, especially of the narcissistic type, unless there is an extreme um, life event, or all relationships have been burned through, or they're court mandated but people with borderline personality often come to therapy much more regularly but then leave quickly because of the transference and the inevitable failure of the therapist but i think because i have a really high tolerance for that kind of emotional distress and an appreciation of just that agony behind the testing that they do and the um declarations of your lack of value to them your lack of caring for them i really can sit with that and propose a different way of looking at things that I've had, I've had more success, I think, than is typical working with these. And especially because I really have always loved working with children and adolescents. I do believe contrary to a lot of opinion, if you, if you work with people at a young age with this kind of proclivity, and then also the environmental factors that lead to these disruptions of relationship, you can you can make a difference and you can help um, alter someone's way of relating to people if you can catch this early and work within the therapeutic relationship. So can you explain what would
0: it look like or what are some ways that it could constellate if you have a client who has borderline personality disorder? What
2: does that look like on the ground? Um, so I think we all have a kind of colloquial common culture view of an understanding of this. It's sort of like the crazy ex-girlfriend trope, like someone's rejected and done wrong and they want to burn everything to the ground. Um, but it, and it's really a very fragile, fragile state of mind that is very shame-based and very abandonment based a terror a terror of being left and being wrong. Um, so in a relationship, it can start off quite positive and fiery and like there's never been as positive an attachment because there's such a thirst for connection and a thirst for a new identity and a new way of being through a relationship. So when you're first in a relationship therapeutic or interpersonal, in the real world with someone, it can be quite intoxicating for both parties because you feel like this person needs you so much and they shine this really bright light on you. But then what you end up, what you start to see is if there's any slight disagreement or suggestion that something could be different, it goes straight to that incredibly wounded core and shame based place. And there's often fury and an extreme sense of betrayal. And that's when you see a lot of threatening behavior of, you know, if you leave me, I will hurt myself. I will hurt your family. I will hurt you.
1: And can I ask, typically, when is it diagnosed? And also, I don't know very much about this. I forgive my ignorance. Is it is it something people think? I heard you say a proclivity. Is it effectively you're born with it and it, emanate, it comes out, it manifests in the teenage 20s, or is it generally a result of trauma? What, what is the general thinking on all that?
2: I think we used to believe it was almost exclusively caused by trauma, by failures of parenting, disruptions of attachment, extreme abuse in the family or elsewhere, So we thought of it as very trauma-based, very abandonment-based, literal abandonment. But I think we're starting to understand more. There's more of a genetic predisposition or a proclivity. So it's the old nature nurture. It applies here, too. Um, In terms of when it can be diagnosed, this, I hope, will lead into our discussion of why we're talking about this on Gender Wider Lens. Because these disorders should not be diagnosed in adolescence. Because if you think about the three main ones in cluster B, we have borderline, narcissistic, and antisocial. And I would argue every single teenager Mm -hmm. at one time or another could look like any one of those or all three of those. So your narcissistic teen, right? Self centered, Um, they know everything, parents are worthless. No one's ever thought about things the way that they have. And that's a very healthy way to be because yeah, that's mm-hmm. how that's how you separate from your parents. Yeah. That's how mm-hmm. you see the world in a fresh way. And it leads to new inventions and political enlightenment. Um, so they can seem very narcissistic. They can seem incredibly borderline. One minute, everything's great. The next minute, everything's awful. Their best friend is the most, most wonderful most. person in the world. And then they're dead to them.
1: I suddenly so. thought of
2: my 14 year old. <laughs>
1: <laughs> right. And she's lovely, but definitely ups and downs. Of yes. The 14 year. Yes, definitely. Yes. yes.
2: And apply to themselves too. Yeah. Right. The they're, they're,
1: phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: So we see that and to diagnose it in adolescence would be really a mistake, but we do start to see some, Oh, there's an extra shade here. This is yeah. a little more persistent. This is a little more generalized. Um, And then the the antisocial too, which doesn't mean um, extreme introvert. We use antisocial to mean more sociopathic crimes against society. And I like to joke with some of my teens who do crazy things in the middle of the night, they go to the neighborhood and steal a stop sign. Now in a 16 year old boy, maybe girl too. Is that antisocial behavior? Is that, no, it's being a stupid teen thinking you're not (laughs) going to get caught. Wouldn't it be funny? You know, it it can escalate, but if we diagnose that and sent a kid to juvie for that, that would be extreme.
1: And their brains, their brains aren't formed and their ability to assess risk is literally unformed. There's so much brain
2: science backing up what you're saying here. Yeah. And Absolutely. And they're supposed to be taking risks. They're supposed to be testing the world. That's how they learn. That's how they separate from us. So I think this is a reason I really gravitate towards these personality disorders too, because I just, I see, I see healthy development gone awry. And if you can catch it early enough, and if you can really work within the therapeutic relationship, you can integrate all these different parts of personality and relationships. So that's why it's, it's a, it's a, it's a challenge to work within this, but it's, it's really rewarding. And I think it's kind for me, it's just the heart of why I became a therapist to help people relate to the world themselves, each other Mm -hmm. better.
0: Yeah. So then let's bring in gender dysphoria, trans identity. Tell us about your thoughts here, Lisa, because you've thought very carefully about this for quite some time, and you have this background in these cluster B
2: personality disorders. Mm -hmm. So uh, pontificate for us. Okay. I'm going to go in two different directions, both why there's more of a vulnerability to Um, embracing the trans ideology, gender ideology in general, with, with more of this kind of questioning, testing personality type. And I think a message to the world, really, certainly other therapists, how we, not the three of us, we, but the world at large right now, I think is creating Disorder of personality in a disorder of relating to the self and to others by the affirmation only model. So let me go back. I think, um, you know, I have an eighteen-year-old daughter now who's been in this world for a while, and male-identified, starting to desist. Very fragile. It's the first time I'm talking about this publicly. Which I could say a lot about, but. What was what's been difficult for me is you often hear about and all the many parents I'm connected to in my own practice and online. Um, you hear more about often a more compliant type and more mm-hmm. neurotypical type with very concrete thinking that's vulnerable to this ideology. And I see that a lot in my practice and also work with that. But I have f- I felt that there's this whole other group that's your feisty politically active, radical. Um, You can't question me. This is what I know. This is how the world is. And if you disagree with me, you are wrong. And it is beautiful. at, At heart, it is what these kids are supposed to do. They're supposed to question us. They're supposed to sniff out any trace of bigotry. But the problem is when it's at the same time that they are developing through Prob- almost always right a painful puberty a painful adolescence in one way or another and we know we know as their parents and as their therapists that something had happened to them as their bodies are changing and they're figuring out their role in the world something happened to make them very vulnerable and very ashamed and uncomfortable in their bodies but this was offered to them as this is this is the answer this is why you feel this way And it can look on the surface the same way that maybe a child on the autism spectrum. Oh, I never really liked my body as it was developing in puberty. And I didn't like tutus and pink when I was a little girl. So that must mean I'm a boy, very concrete, rigid thinking. I think with this other personality type, it's more now I don't have to feel so bad about myself This explains it. And not only does this explain it, it takes me away from it. It offers an escape. And it also offers me this whole inclusion in this very political, noble world. And Mm -hmm. I'm discovering, we're discovering in this community, a new way of being where gender doesn't have to matter. You don't have to be trapped in a body. You can change things. Biological sex isn't real because that is what made me feel so awful. So I want to feel like I can escape it. Um. Yeah, I'm really glad. It really does say it very clearly. I'm really glad
1: you raised that personality. You know, um, there's there's a few narratives that we all fall in with. And, you know, the compliant, gentle, socially awkward, timid, you know, we we have that one. <laughs> We have that one very well, Um, you know, and then the boys came in and we thought, oh, we need to discuss this. We need to discuss There's, You know, there's a whole boy section that needs a bit of attention because that's another type. And that type, the type that you're raising now, has consistently, Mm -hmm. I've seen in parent meetings consistently, the parents would talk about the timid, socially awkward again, again, again. And then one person would go. I don't know what my child is, but she's nothing like any of yours. She's just yeah. fighting all the way. And I used to go, they're a regular subtype. I saw them as a regular subtype. Yeah. And each time the parent would be going, I, well, I'm so not where ye all are. <laughs> However, yes. there's, there's, there's similarities in the politics and stuff. So it's really good that, that we're giving some attention mm-hmm. to it.
0: Yeah. And and with this personality trait, I'm also seeing, and you tell me if this fits, these are kids who have kind of enjoyed getting a rise out of people their whole lives and have always been a little counterculture or contrarian or um, edgy, very kind of interested in standing out and not looking like everyone else and that kind of anti-normie group. Right. So I I also think a lot about how it's normal and healthy for there to be a little bit of like a persecution fantasy when you're a teenager, as in my parents just have it out for me. They want me to be miserable or the whole world is set up to make us fail. And um, I wonder if that's part of this borderline trait kind of subsection,
2: too. That's a perfect way to say it. Absolutely. And I think a lot of parents would describe that, would describe that my kids always stood out. My kids always been the hard one to, um, to get to comply to things, to do what they don't want. These are the really questioning kids, the constant "Why's"? can't we do this a different way? But I do want to say also that, and here's where I'm going to go into the iatrogenic nature of it. A lot of times you will hear parents say, this is the first and only thing we have ever really disagreed on. And this came on the scene and suddenly all of the past harmony and ability to work through differences and just discuss things openly, passionately maybe, but openly and respectfully, completely gone. And there's this wall up. And I think this is a normal part of adolescent individuation gone very awry and i think that's where i'm going to head into the iatrogenic piece of this because we have we we have these kids being told there's there's no questioning of this if you say x then x is reality and anyone who says differently is wrong and not just wrong but in this case, transphobic. And, and then we see the defenses come up around, um, around what will happen if I'm not affirmed and suddenly all goodwill and all prior history is erased and they were never understood. And this becomes everything about them instead of all this prior time and I'm not even just talking about gender it's not even just like well you were a girl with american girl dolls until yesterday and then overnight it's not just about that it's about under being understood as a as a child from mm-hmm. by the parent and that all that goodwill and history is gone and so we see this with you know, well-meaning teachers, well-meaning physicians coming in and saying, "Well, if your parents don't affirm, they are wrong, and we will affirm you." And we see this with with therapists as well. And so, it is causing this rift in between children and their families, um, and it can look quite. Borderline. I think this is actually very heartening because what I don't want parents to think as they're listening to this, if they have this subset of kid I don't want them to think, oh my gosh, I didn't even realize my child had borderline personality disorder because I think most of them do not. This is still a rare condition, but I think it's my belief that we've even iatrogenically created gender dysphoria because I think Mm -hmm. it starts with puberty is awful. Puberty feels terrible for most bodies. Society is really difficult around the developing female body and developing male sexuality. We're terrible with it. And so it's a hard time to go through, but then when it's diagnosed as gender dysphoria and then kids have that in mind. Everything's put on that. And then suddenly everything's seen through that lens. Concretely, if a girl starts wearing a binder, their breasts are going to feel worse. So then suddenly it really is their breasts as opposed Mm -hmm. to, I just didn't really like the attention I was getting for this, or it feels uncomfortable, but if I sit with it, it will get better. Instead. It's like, no, that is the problem. So I think we've created the gender dysphoria out of just regular, I think Lisa Marciano talks about this, Mm -hmm. like dysphoria just means dis-ease, discomfort, but we've turned it into something much more concrete. And I think in the same way, we're creating this personality structure that um, is very much in opposition and very much closes dialogue and closes, most importantly, integration. Integration of you know, someone can disagree with you, but still love you. Someone can, um, you can feel uncomfortable with a body part, but not need to change it or get rid of it. You can be unhappy, but not be suicidal. There's no integrating anymore. There's this, this polarization of, um, of diagnoses and explanations for things. There's there's a lot
0: coming to my mind. Um, I think this is fascinating, because I've heard kind of writers, authors, psychologists, commentators talk about how our culture and particularly like devices and selfies and social media can create narcissism. And you're saying that there are certain aspects of this kind of dogmatic view of gender exploration, that creates kind of borderline dynamics between kids and their parents. And you, you know, as we were talking about this episode, you said, this is an abuse of our field. Can you just kind of delve into that more? Because, I mean, this is a big theme, obviously, that Stella and I are seeing and that all these parents are corroborating, that parents are being treated like the enemy, like abusers. Mm -hmm. And it's pretty shocking. And you wouldn't really believe it unless you heard the stories. But that seems to be the way a borderline personality tends to frame people. You're either the best or you're the worst. So Mm -hmm. I just want to understand a little bit
2: more about how is our field creating the theatrogenic problem? We're like, just say more about this. I would love to. I want to share one anecdote from early in my training. I worked at Napa state hospital on the borderline personality disorder unit. I don't know if it still exists there, but it was an intense place as you can imagine and really valuable. Unfortunately, we saw people, they were, really far into a lot of trauma and this personality. So there weren't, weren't very many optimistic outcomes, but I was walking on the grounds once with a, with a young woman. We were um, about the same age. It was kind of questionable. I was a very young clinician out um, on the grounds, but she, she ran into a pole. We were talking and she ran into a large metal floodlight pole, banged her head pretty badly and she turned to me and said, You hit me on the head. You hurt me. And it was it, it it illuminated so much for me about this um absolute tendency to see actual pain manifested that way and attributed to to a person who You're close to like whoever is there. Yeah. (laughs) Can
1: can I ask, was it an, was it an emotional conversation or
2: did she suddenly just run into the pole? Like it was somewhat of an emotional conversation, but not extremely. So, so she was looking at me, we were looking at each other talking as we were walking and somehow bumped into this pole. We both didn't see it somehow. I don't know. Maybe we were really engaged in conversation. So I should say about borderline personality, the reason it's called borderline is that it's believed to be in between neurosis and psychosis, and it can look quite psychotic at times. If there is an abandonment, a pain, something that stirs up a past trauma or pain, suddenly the person almost loses all coherence and is almost psychotic in their certainty that the person currently in their life is abusing them. So that was the most concrete manifestation of that that I've ever seen. So why do I bring this up now? Childs Researches Online Gender Therapist. Child says to parent, "Oh, I found this person who's going to work with us and prob- finally show you what I've been trying to tell you all along. That if the parent has been trying not to affirm, so mm. and parent maybe." talks to gender therapist before, maybe there's a little parent section and the therapist seems to be, Oh, right. Yes. I see. Yes. I, I do think this could be more complex. Yes. I understand your child played with American girls. Wasn't gender nonconforming as a child. Let me talk. Let me do this evaluation. 10 minutes. You've heard this story so many times we all have. Of Ten course, minutes- we're not going to rush into affirmation. Of course, exactly. we're going to explore. Right. And then 10 minutes with the child then, because most of these gender therapists will maybe agree to meet with the parents first and then the child 10 minutes at the most with the child, then parent logs back on because we're all virtual parent logs back on. And the therapist is suddenly completely different, completely different demeanor. Yes. I've diagnosed your child with gender dysphoria and starts using the opposite pronouns and complete affirmation. And that's where it starts. That's where it starts. Your parents are wrong. Your parents see you this way. Your parents just want to have the daughter. They don't want to accept you as you are. It's creating this sense of, if you're not validated, if you are not believed, then they are wrong and you are right. And you know, this thing about you. Um, so, And then all the statistics that are spouted. So if you're, if you don't affirm your child, the whole, would you rather have uh, the opposite sex child or a dead Mm -hmm. male? And Mm -hmm. that is, we are feeding them the script, the borderline script. If you don't do this, I will hurt myself. hurt myself. myself. I will kill myself. I will run away. We're feeding it to them.
1: Um, yeah, I know we are feeding them those messages. There's no doubt about it. But I'm wondering: Did you trace how we came to how How have we so fallen in? I know there's been diagnosis creep, but we this doesn't. I don't think this was happening. You know, 15 years ago, that we were feeding borderline lines to people who were hysterical or maybe I'm wrong. Am I- C- can I ask, I
0: think this tags onto your question. I've been studying influence and kind of toxic groups and high control groups and cults and everything you're saying with like, if you don't do this imminent doom and death, that is a very normal part of a lot of high influence groups. Right. So the ideology itself has these dramatic like a lot of times parents say you know my kid is usually so calm and rational and when we talked about this Sasha they were so dramatic like the high drama the exaggeration the hyperbole the like life or death um i, I wondered do you know much or anything about how involvement in like toxic belief systems can also exacerbate or bring about these types of traits cuz to me what you're saying sounds a lot like also, people who are under undue influence act mm-hmm. this way, mm-hmm.
2: and, and I think online there are there are those dynamics, and there are people who are intentionally doing this to children. But I think that's actually quite the minority. I think this is coming from very well-meaning place, but terribly misguided. I think a lot, a lot like this gender therapist that I was somewhat disparagingly describing. I really do believe most of them believe that they are helping these children believe that it is the same as how we didn't used to accept some of us homosexuality. And so now whenever we hear the T on the rainbow that we have to affirm it because that is truly seeing someone and truly accepting what they know to be true of themselves. And that has a very noble core, but it's, I think really misapplied to this. Um, so I, I do think there's a there there are there are tactics of influence here, but I don't think they're always ne- necessarily maliciously implied. I truly think people believe that they are helping and seeing the parents as the obstacles to these children and adolescents and young people really being themselves and really being accepted the irony of course that we've talked about so many times all of us is that it's often the opposite because it's coming very much from a not accepting of the body sometimes not accepting of the sexual orientation so it's painfully ironic that it's actually not affirming to just fall right into the trans identity we hope you're enjoying this episode
0: of our podcast. We work very hard to maintain high quality content
1: for this show, and we're grateful to Rhyme and Genspect for supporting us. Rhyme, or Rethink Identity Medicine Ethics, is a nonprofit organization dedicated to improving long term care for gender variant individuals. Visit rethinkime.org to learn more.
0: And Genspect is an international alliance of parents and professional groups whose aim is to advocate for parents of gender
1: questioning children and young people. If you'd like to become a patron, you'll have access to weekly transcripts and special Q&As, and you can join our listener community. Now back to the show.
0: I often um, will talk to parents about this to kind of go back to something you were saying earlier about this black and white perspective on what support looks like from the parents. And um, how a child can maybe get confused about their entire life history. And sometimes I'll tell parents, you know, you may need to sit down and have like a really heart to heart talk with your kid where you say, you know, I know that there are some people online who say, if we don't immediately use your name, it means we don't love and support you. But I want you to understand, for example, like from our perspective, this has been really challenging. It's been confusing and you know, do you remember when you were 10 and you really, really wanted to go to so-and-so camp and I quit my job so that I could take you that summer? Like, you may have to remind your kid of all the things that you've done and the bond you have, because I think being swept up in the moment, they can kind of get tunnel vision. And, um, I wonder like, this is a bit of a tangent, but I'm curious, like you've had such success working with people who have these cluster B traits, which I know, it's kind of like a well known rumor in psychology that these are really hard people to work with. Mm-hmm. So like, are are there any parallels between like successful ways that ROGD parents connect with their kids, and like how a clinician would work successfully with like a cluster B person?
2: Are there parallels? I think there certainly are. I mean, it brings up a bit of the imposter syndrome that we all have in one way or another, because here I am a therapist and a mother of an ROGD kid. And so it's, I, I, ha, I have, I'm sure I've made so many mistakes with my daughter and helping her through this because this began before I ever heard of Lisa Littman and Abigail Schreier and you guys. And so, um, so there are so many parallels and, having that long view and reminding the child of the past is really important, but here's where it's really tricky. There's almost an intentional separation that the child tries to go through from all of that good stuff in the past, because Mm -hmm. I would argue that a large percentage of ROGD parents constantly say to themselves, we were the most like involved attached, giving, nurturing parent and where we got it it, it makes where we are now makes no sense. But what I'm what I would argue is we haven't, we've made it so comfortable and so easy that the kids have to go through something extreme to separate and all children need to separate and find their own paths and break from us. And there's another piece of it, because you so often, the preamble almost every ROGD parent will give is, "I am so liberal. I've always voted Democratic, but <laughs> and but I don't believe in true trans anymore." And and so my husband and I used to joke, "What are how are our kids going to rebel when they're teenagers? Like there's nothing to rebel that was against." The most
1: common joke among parents for the last right? generation,
2: and we never would have guessed it was this. And and so if you think about it incredibly liberal parents, for the most part, I don't want to overgeneralize, but, but, um, and and so, and and parents who even like have the tattoos themselves, dye their hair purple, go to the same concerts with their kids. There's no frontier. What frontier was left. And this came on the scene and it was the perfect one so it was the perfect thing the new frontier to say aha i have something that even you don't can't can't embrace and i think the more that we try to with with these with our kids say oh i do understand what you mean like sometimes i don't always feel feminine or yeah like they don't want us to identify they want it to be their own thing which is beautiful and If there weren't medicalization threatening our children, and if there weren't like other therapists and teachers and politics and the world saying, if your parents aren't on board, they are awful and you should be estranged and go to the glitter family, et cetera. If that all didn't exist, this would be a more benign, still a little mind bending, but a more benign rite of passage to do you know go through Erikson's stages of individuation and finding your own way and there's something beautiful in this non-binary mm-hmm. questioning until it gets to biology until it gets to surgery and hormones and life shortening and all of that could i ask um we
1: we we have to an extraordinary extent uh, you know analyze the personality type of the 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 adolescent who gravitates towards this and I I, I I, don't attach any blame or anything, but just purely in the spirit of curiosity, it almost feels unbalanced that we haven't done an equal analysis of the parent of the child mm-hmm. who's attracted mm-hmm. to this. You know what I mean? I don't say it in a blame, but in a purely like, might there be? And you've kind of half circled it. And I've often thought with a, with a growing kind of thought in my mind has been... W- w- is is there a is there a kind of a, a gentleness in the parents? Is there a a, a kind of a yes. softness, and a kind of a dislike of now? I'm only throwing it out, but a dislike of confident, com, of of conflict, dislike of conflict. Mm-hmm. And uh, 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 a kind of unease around authority. And then I think of you've described this, you know, liberal progressive who's very much, let's all get on. We'll listen to everybody. We'll avoid all fights at all times. What does the five-year-old want? What does the eight-year-old want? What does the Mm 13-year-old want? We'll go together. It's all done in that way. And might it be
2: that combo? Might it? I think you're... Do you hundred percent and 100 so I'll go back to the child my childhood that I described very lonely, very lonely and not attended to because mm-hmm. my parents were and so I I hubristically thought I know I, I will I will raise such happy loved children. I will attend to their every need I will be John Bowlby just taken to the most <laughs> extreme. <destructive, laughs> I will, I could never let my children cry it out to fall asleep. Mm-hmm. They were the terrible speakers because of that. I did not teach them well to just sit with distress. If something hurt, I rushed in to fix it. And um, I, I think, I don't know that I even could do it any differently yeah. because that's so in my bones to yeah. be that way. But I don't yeah. think, did a great service. And I think probably that I'm not alone in that.
1: You're strikingly not alone. I, the the stories I hear, I breastfed, I didn't let them cry it out. I, you know, Mm -hmm. child led, child centered. And, and I, I'm frightened now. I'm frightened of the conflict. I'm frightened to poke the alligator. I'm frightened to just, I'm frightened, I'm terrified of my child's distress because I haven't really seen my child be in distress.
2: The closest I came to my husband and I to came to just saying, forget it. Let's just let her transition. It it, it was the, her extraordinary pain and suffering. And yes, some of that was created online by the script mm. that we all know about, but a lot of it was just the real angst of adolescence. And I knew in my gut that transitioning was not going to fix anything, but it was so devastating and so hard to sit through. Plus, this script of, you are wrong. You are hurting me. You are the pole. You hit me in the head. It's not the pole, it's you, mom. Yeah. By not affirming, very hard. And
0: you're so right about that separation question because, you know, I was speaking with a parent recently. And this was a very connected, very loving mother who had, like, I would say, an incredibly close relationship with her child to the point where maybe beyond the age where it was typical, this son was like a mama's boy, like snuggle up in her love and warmth and comfort, you know, and she was saying that she just wanted to make sure that no matter what, he knew he could come to her and talk to her and confide in her. And through our conversation, I ended up saying, you know, I think he actually doesn't want you to try and help with this. I think he needs to go dark, have some angsty, miserable teenage months, and figure this out by himself. He knows you're there for him. As a matter of fact, he's probably pushing you, you know? And so I, I I do think that there's a type of family constellation which is incredibly special and important in the childhood years. And sometimes the kids don't know how else to like wriggle out from their parents' care. Mm-hmm. But the, And the, maybe
1: you, okay. you go ahead and then I'll come in with my problem.
2: <laughs> well, if we draw the parallel and, and I think a lot of people my age had similar kinds of childhoods in terms of the loneliness and the parents not being so child-focused. Let's simplify it and say it that way. And so then this this sense of how awful that felt, and we didn't want our kids to feel that way, but then we went overboard and we're not giving them the experience of, it's okay to feel bad. We don't need to rush in with the next prescription or the next intervention or the next pony or kitten or puppy, right? You can sit with a bad feeling. I don't think we're giving that to kids anymore because we maybe had it too much. And, and we see this sometimes with generational um switching from really overinvolved and indulged children to then the the opposite of raising a sort of more resilient and tough and and back and forth if it goes too extreme in any one. And I, I think that's where where we are now. So this just this ability to sit with the the pain and the discomfort, without feeling like it's going to kill you, is is has been lost.
1: There's two kind of pieces of research I'd love anybody listening to take carry out. One would be what is it about the early gender critical per- people? How did how did they take up on it? You know what I mean? What is the personality types of those? And then secondly, the parents. How many of these parents came from what I would argue? Is uh, neglected, distressed backgrounds who just mm-hmm. went the other way with love and affection and just gorgeous attention to their child. Like I won't give my child the lonely mm. sadness that I had. But um, yeah. there I go with my problem. I kind of think, and I, I, you know, I would be very much that parent insofar as I, I am, I'm devastated around my children's distress. I, I just freeze and. All I want to do is just make them happy. I would throw anything at them at that in that crazy moment. And um I can see them getting annoyed, back off as I'm like in panic because they're distressed. <laughs> yeah. And I'm thinking, My God, I know you know a mother's place is in the wrong and all that, but like what are parents to do? Talk about heads, we lose tails that <laughs> we lose like what are we to do? Insofar as we're loving, engaged, everything that we're told by the baby books to be, and then we're told, mm-hmm. do you know what's wrong? You're loving and you're engaged.
2: <laughs> I, know, I know it's the irony, right? And it always it comes back from the parent. Yeah.
1: yeah, and I, I don't really know what to do. I often think some of these children, uh, you know, all, this generation I'm talking about, they've had such lovely childhoods. And is there an actual, I remember Lisa Marchiano saying, you know, adolescence is, is there to break the the spell of childhood. No. Y- you know what I mean? And is yeah. is adolescence with puberty and periods and that, that kind of strange period between 10 and 20, you have to become a sexual being or, yeah. Is that, is there intrinsic pain involved in adolescence that we, we need to
2: make known?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And prepare for. So if there's such a stark contrast, like we were describing idyllic to this horror and nobody prepared me. And also it looks easy for everyone else. I'm not going to measure up and no one prepared me for this. And I haven't really experienced something hard that, that made me be tough and resilient and know that it's going to be okay to go through something difficult.
1: And I've been taught that if I'm unhappy, something is wrong and something needs to be fixed. And that, that is far from the cluster B or OGD. You're just, we're just talking about in general now at this stage, this is, this is Mm -hmm. the adolescent experience. Are you saying that there's, there's something about the cluster B personality that will be more likely to be an ROGD teenager? Or are you saying that there's just real parallels with these issues that we need to be exploring?
2: I think there's a greater vulnerability to shame. And so the shame of the developing body could be experienced that much with more devastation. And so the desire to find something to get out of it to explain it i think that might make it more make that individual more vulnerable but in general i think i think this is an epidemic that doesn't know boundaries that has you know affected kids indiscriminately to some degree so i tend to think of it more more helpfully in terms of who how to help kids integrate enough, integrate all these different facets of life that I think is the job of a therapist and what makes it more difficult with a certain with certain personality types or um, neurological types like we've talked so much about. So that's that's how I think about it more.
0: I, I've often heard that with borderline personality people talk about kind of a an unstable core sense of identity. And I don't know if I'm understanding it correctly, but I kind of think about somebody whose identity feels really porous as in like they absorb and kind of take on like in a chameleon like way, Mm -hmm. Uh, whoever they happen to be highly attached to at the time. They don't seem to have like a core sense of self. They seem to be a leaf in the wind a little bit. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about what that is and does that relate to the shame you mentioned? Because you said, really in passing, that these kids might be more vulnerable
2: to shame. Can mm-hmm. you say more about both of those things? Well, what first struck me as you were ta- as you were saying that, Sasha, is that that also describes the 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 adolescent, the adolescent yes. experience of yes. that porousness suddenly to peers. It's every parent's nightmare that. Suddenly, the peers are the main influence, and a kid will start vaping when two days before they were, you know, disparaging a stranger on the street smoking a cigarette. And now suddenly they're vaping, and you've lost all sense of influence over them because they're with their peers. So it's it's very adolescent, and that's again why we don't diagnose these disorders exactly in adolescence because they're supposed to turn away from us, and hopefully their peer group isn't terribly dangerous. But but um. And again, I think, I think the world right now is intensifying that, is intensifying if your parents don't support you, then they are wrong and you should be following your peers and these older influencers online. So I don't even think these kids necessarily have to have this predisposition in terms of personality or certainly not always trauma that leads to a fractured personality. I think, I think we're creating it. It, We take the difficulty of puberty and the difficulty separating from these parents who have been so enveloping and we're giving them this horrifying script of how far they can go to separate.
0: But do you think that 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 trait may, like, if you look back at various social contagions that have happened, I know that young females tend to be more vulnerable, but there are also adults who seem to be vulnerable to social contagion more than others. Do you think there may be just speculatively, like borderline traits of that unstable core identity involved in people who do tend to kind of jump from one extreme identity to another or something?
2: I think, because if, yeah, I absolutely do agree with that. It's a, it's a sense of belonging. It's a sense of it, it, it. Maybe I am like them and I can fit in and I will be accepted and embraced. And this explains why I've always felt like I don't really belong or I don't really like myself or I don't really fit. And I've, I've heard you use the phrase, if I'm right,
1: iatrogenic personality disorder,
2: Yes, and is it you who coined this? I, I, There are probably other people who have come up with this idea, who have seen this, but I don't. I haven't heard anyone talk about it.
1: So we, we're pioneering this concept, and um, I think we've just spoken about it. But could you say it in in a nutshell so that, like, we can okay. so let it set sail?
2: <laughs> yes, iatrogenesis is an illness caused by a treatment or a diagnosis. So the most obvious is if you if someone goes into surgery and you amputate the wrong leg, that's a that's the most concrete one. But there are more subtle forms of it that are more psychological. And I think I think I was trying to describe earlier how I believe a lot of gender dysphoria is actually iatrogenic. We take the distress of adolescence and the changing body and fitting into a difficult society. Um, and all the online exposure, we take all of that and we give this neat diagnosis of everything can be explained because you were born in the wrong body and you need to change it. And then all the focus is on that. And then these kids can, you can check off every box in the DSM diagnostic criteria for gender dysphoria, but it didn't have to do ever with gender. They were not gender nonconforming as kids. It really doesn't have to do with gender. So, and I think similarly, we are creating this personality response of victimization. I've never been understood. People are against me and of the glitter family. I mean, it's actually, it's not even that. Hard to to talk about it because the words are all out there. There's the glitter family, and then there's the transphobic parents. It's it's bifurcating Mm. the world into you're with me or you're against me. It's the black and white thinking. And that's why I think it could look it could look similar to autistic traits, a very concrete. So if I never liked pink, then I must be a a boy. If I never like to play with trucks, then I must be Mm -hmm. a girl it's very concrete, but I think the personality complication in it is more, I felt, I felt wrong. I felt uncomfortable. I need to separate from people who are holding me back, maybe holding me too tightly, not accepting how I might be different. And it goes into this extreme ideology of, then I have to cut off everything literally on the body in in some ways. And figuratively with ties to the past. Wow. Wow. That's a very powerful metaphor. When you think about it that way, I have to
0: cut off everything, Mm -hmm. which is so isolating. I mean, it's really, um, a path towards extreme isolation if you are in that mental space. And is that the ultimate fate of a
2: lot of adults who have these borderline traits? Is it like a pretty lonely life? It can be incredibly lonely because it can push people away so dramatically because with the smallest mm-hmm. breach of connection, mm-hmm. and if it's a disagreement over, I think that's blue. No, that's green. Oh, you can't disagree with me. You mm-hmm. hate me. You think I'm stupid. You think I'm crazy. It goes so extreme and it's very hard to stay in relationship to someone who's constantly testing and questioning. So it's very lonely. Yeah. And, and that leads me to, I mean, I, I think we could talk about like the word I, I, that I really always hold in mind in the therapeutic work I do is integration. So how do you integrate? Life can be painful and wonderful. You can hate your body one minute, feel uncomfortable in your skin one minute. And then the next minute, be okay. Put on some clothes, go out into the world. You can feel, like you have masculine traits and feminine traits, but you can integrate them. You don't need to change. Um, someone can disappoint you and still love you. Someone mm-hmm. can disagree with you and still be there for you. Yeah, integrate. That's what it, that's what it's all about. No matter who comes into your office or on your screen yeah. in therapy, you're trying to integrate. With, um, with- and I think this world isn't allowing these children and young people to integrate these different parts of themselves and these different complexities in relationships.
1: And the lack of of complexity, it's black and white, it's up and down, it's you're right or you're wrong. And it's so polarized, it, it feels almost like a reflection of how society is going. And it reminds me of of something you mentioned, mentioned in an earlier communication with us around Susan Bradley's point about the um, autistic girls that she felt that they were diagnosed as borderline personality disorders. Mm-hmm. And she laterally thought, I think they might have been autistic. Mm-hmm. What
2: were your thoughts around that? I thought about that a lot after I heard that on the podcast. At first I was like, no, and no, no, really? And then I thought about it more and it really led me into exploring that and how they can look really similar. And here's a weird metaphor that I came up with or an analogy maybe. So young child, there's a birthday cake on the counter, but it's breakfast time. That birthday cake's left there from the night before. And the child wants the birthday cake for breakfast. And the parent says, you don't have cake for breakfast, have some pancakes. And the kid says, that the child who's more concrete thinking says, or let's just say child in general says no, I want the cake. I want the cake. I can have cake. Cake. The, the child with more autistic tendencies might be like, mom, eggs, flour, butter, sugar. You put <laughs> all of those things in pancakes. It's the same thing. Cream cheese icing. You put cream cheese on a bagel. That's breakfast food. I mean, so it's bagel- called
0: a pancake for God's sakes. Exactly I'm with right. the autistic kid on this one.
2: So tantrum, t- terrible temper tantrum. <laughs> Maybe even before they explain their reasoning. So you have, so some of that tantrum could be from, you don't see the world the way that I'm seeing it. This is the same list of ingredients, but the different, uh, the Mm. same similar tantrum could also have, you don't love me. You would give my brother cake for breakfast, but you're not giving me cake for breakfast. So you see, it could look very much the same. No, I want cake. I'm allowed to have cake. Cake is fine for breakfast but two very different underlying constellations of emotion and understanding of it. So one is interpersonal. You love my brother more. You would give him cake. Mm. Maybe I'll become a boy eventually because you love my brother more. Or no, same ingredients. That makes no sense. You are wrong. That's stupid. Um, and so I suspect maybe some of that was behind that who knows now who was what but they can look very similar and their similar rage when you're not understood and whether it's you're not understood because your mind works in a different way or you're not understood because this pain of connection is 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 being missed and not being helped very very different and therefore very different treatments if we're we able to work with people in therapy, you want to approach it really differently if one's more of a neurological cognitive response and one's more an interpersonal attachment response, but it can look quite the same. And I'll add too that kids on the spectrum, even if they're really
0: um, verbal and really intelligent and, ca- and somewhat communicative, they often resort to self-harm because they have so many complex emotions that they don't know exactly how to express And I imagine someone with borderline traits might also say, if you don't give me cake, I'm going to hurt myself. So that might look similar on like a surface examination. But if you dig into it, there might be different reasons uh, behind those expressions of self-harm, for example. So I can see how
2: easily those overlap. They could be so mixed. And the self-harm maybe in the more concrete thinking like, okay, I saw online, other people are doing this when they're, when they're upset. It's a way to localize a pain. No one's right. And I'm going to hide it. Whereas the more interpersonal one is going to show you is going to take the kitchen knife and do it in the kitchen in front of you because they're trying to get, they're trying to repair. It's very, and this Mm. is, they're trying to repair the relationship by showing you I'm in such pain and I don't think you see me. So please see me.
1: Hmm. The, uh, we're coming towards the end. This has been so fascinating. I could give it another hour easily, <laughs> easily. But there's well something I really want to ask you about um, is something you mentioned when we were communicating with each other around a strategy you use about integration and gender roles, and mm-hmm. kind of uh, swapping gender names and stuff. Could you tell us about that? I'm
2: so glad you brought that up. Yeah. Yes, I would love to share this because I have to. I have to say. It's really helped. It, this has really worked with a handful of older children and young adults. Well, actually, really the my older adolescents in my practice. So I'm a very firm believer in non-affirming, no social transition, no. Um, and so it's it's a bind for us therapists when someone comes and wants the opposite sex pronouns and the different name. And I really try without breaching the therapeutic connection and the sense that I'm on their side, I really try not to just agree to use, and I'm a pronoun ninja, I've become one, but still there are times if so what I have what I've done, and it's so simple really, I suggest to people, can we come up with a name that combines your birth name and the name, the name of the day? Because sometimes these kids have one name that they've chosen, but then some of my kids My patients like have a different name every week, but whatever the name of the day is, can we combine them? And I kind of joke with them. They don't know who I'm talking about really when I say like Brangelina, like the shipping kind of name, which does even if they don't know the same players, they know that concept of and so for instance, it could be like, let's say the name is Jack and they want to go by Jill. I say, can we call you Jack and Jill? Or if their name is Emma and they want to be Andrew, can we call you Emma Drew? Like to combine the names. And that's and and the way that I explain it to them is I don't believe in you know that in 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 becoming the other, but I believe that we all, you know the when I think it was Stephen Levine, right? Who said to you guys who quoted Whitman and the we all contain multitudes. And I use that. I say we all have all parts in us. We but we are only one. We're only one sex. But you have the masculine and the feminine in you. So why don't we come up with a name that that symbolizes both? You don't change, but you want to call yourself something that encompasses, again, integrates both. And some one kid responded to me, well, how about instead I, I go by my birth name, but we talk about w- how my parents chose that birth name what my girl, what my opposite sex birth name was going to be. It, it just opens mm. them up to talking about, okay, maybe you're right. I don't have to actually change that surface thing, but we can talk about all these different
1: imagine, My name is Stella and you want to, I want to change it to Liam. What would you uh-huh. do? You tell him.
2: To Liam. <laughs> so Liam or Stellum or Stellum. Okay. And here's the thing, guys. Here's the thing. It's usually clunky enough <laughs> that they're not going to go into the world and ask to call that.
1: And, and so, what if they say, what are, are you talking about? I am Liam. And what is this
2: stellium stuff? What happens then? Right. Well, it's, they, they, I bring it up only if I think they're ready for, yeah. to talk about yeah. on that. It's a, on, on it's that, a large concept. Level. Yeah. Yeah. But, but you'd be surprised. I mean, yeah. it's, and with a few of these kids it's like weeks later that they they come into session and say yeah yeah i w- i'm not going to do all that stuff to my body that i was talking about doing now i'm not saying it's that magical it's just it's been it's been a way to make concrete right we talk so much about how this world is making all of these feelings too concrete so i'm sort of turning that on its head and let's make this Notion of combining these different sides of you more concrete in your actual name. And like I was starting to say, these names that we make up are clunky enough. They're not gonna really catch on. They're not gonna, it's too embarrassing to be a Stellina, right? Or a whatever name we came up with you. Wow. <laughs> um, so they're not going to do that with their friends, with their teachers, but it allows us to talk about integrating the different sides of them. And that's what this is all about, re-embracing. They're the, all of the multitudes. Within. I hear you. So, this is purely a
1: therapeutic strategy to keep both sides of the self within the process and to give both due respect as we work through the different facets of us.
2: Yeah. I try to explain why I'm not going all opposite gender, but I also want to meet them and I want to understand what they're trying to express and about their identity and how they haven't really felt like who their parents think they are. And I try to talk about how that's a really healthy thing that our parents, no matter how much they love us and how, uh, no matter how close we are to them, we all have sides to us that our parents that's don't right. know. And they ha- that deserves to come out, that's but how right. far do you have to go? Do you have to just go 180? Do you have to cut everything off, so to speak? So it's a way to integrate. That's brilliant,
0: Lisa. We are so grateful to have had you on. I'm, I'm feeling like there should be a part two of this because this is really interesting. Anytime. I would be happy to talk more. Great. Thanks for joining us this week on gender, a wider lens. This podcast is sponsored by rhyme and genspect and listener support means a lot to us. The best way to help
1: is to subscribe and review us on iTunes, follow us on social media. And if you'd like to become a patron, You'll have access to weekly transcripts of the show, special Q&As, and you can join our listener community. Just go to our link tree. That's linktree slash widerlenspod. Our discussions are for educational
0: purposes only and are not intended as a substitute for mental health services.